Before we get started, Channel 33, as always, is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and our favorite way to buy and sell tickets to sporting events, concerts, and whatever else you want to go to. With the SeatGeek mobile app, you can quickly and easily buy tickets with just two taps and have your tickets delivered straight to your phone to enter the event. And if you can't make the event, SeatGeek now lets you transfer tickets to your friends or post tickets for sale, all from your phone. As a special offer for Channel 33 listeners, SeatGeek is giving $20 back off your first purchase with the promo code BSPN. To get $20 back off your first SeatGeek purchase, download the SeatGeek app today and enter promo code BSPN. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now, Hello and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and with me on the other line, he just discovered what a Brentwood hello was. It's Andy Greenwald! Re-up! <laughs> it's the re-up! It's Friday. It's The Watch re-up. Uh, me and Andy are here for you for for a briefer, uh, a briefer span of time, a brief history of time. Uh, Andy, you can find The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. It's on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud. It's on Stitcher. You should go to TheRinger.com and you should sign up for our newsletter. And you can also follow us uh, on Twitter at Ringer, on a Facebook at Ringer, and on Instagram at Ringer. I'm pretty excited about this newsletter because do you get the, the New York Times cooking newsletter? You ever get that? I get the, the, the morning briefing. That thing? No, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but your your boy Sam Sifton writes these very very like frilly flowery messages oh, to us about one, yeah. what we should be cooking once a week. Yeah, I uh, actually don't really read the Times. I only have a RSS for Joe Nocera. That's fair. That's fair because when you can hold your glasses the way that man holds his glasses, you got to pay attention. I'm just saying I don't know what kind of newsletter is coming my way when I sign up for the Ringer. But I, but I signed up. That's what I wanted to say. That I, we, was my little like plug within the plug. We appreciate your support, Andy. Let's jump right into this uh, Friday Five. We're just going to kind of buzz through a few topics. Uh, we're going to be talking about OJ, Better Call Saul, uh, very special sitcom episodes, the return Ooh. of very special Ooh. episodes, uh, new band, well, not new band, new album from the band 1975, and of course the Oscars, which are coming up this weekend. Uh, Andy, let's talk a little bit about People vs. OJ. Yeah, we, I, I was I was wondering where you were going to start, and I'm glad we're starting with the, with the best stuff. Um, I have a I have a positive and a negative. What do you want to hear first? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I kind of normally you start with the bad news, but I feel like it's Friday. You know, people are just psyched for their weekends. Let's just let us down easy. Start with the good stuff. Uh, Connie Britton is a queen. <laughs> always and always a queen. And the the Faye Resnick show would have been like if we've talked about this a little bit just off off the pod and we're going to talk about it now but like if you were going to make a spinoff of oj if you were going to make a, a people versus oj simpson spinoff i don't think you could do much better than the Fay Fa resnick chronicles I, well let's let's go macro here this show is so good and enjoyable and the ratings are so strong i think that fx would be foolish not to start mining let's call it strip mining the show for parts and make a lot more dramas out of this. And the Faye Resnick show would of course be at the top of the list. Now I actually have one ahead of it, but it does make you think like Faye Resnick, isn't she kind of like real housewives? Yeah, she's Jace? actually on like, real housewives, right? So, so this boggles my mind. Like I've never true confession time. I've never actually seen a living second of any of those shows. And I'm not actually embarrassed about that, right. but I kind of get the gist. You know, right. I feel like, it's kind of like the Fountainhead. You know, people talk about it enough where you kind of know where, where you'd fall on it. Sure. Um, so, but what boggles my mind is those shows are, are they print money. 
and people are always watching them and talking about them. And it's so odd that no network has made a successful scripted version of one of those shows, right? Wasn't that Desperate Housewives, though? Yeah, but that was 10 years ago. Like, the reason those those Bravo shows work is because they cut them with the narrative arcs and beats of old-fashioned soap operas, Mm -hmm. like Knott's Landing. But it's cheaper. But so, I mean, who wouldn't want to watch a show with Queen Connie Britton and... I, I don't know what 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 do you what do you call her like Princess Regent Selma Blair, just cutting <laughs> through '90s early '90s Brentwood like butter knives through fresh ricotta like that would be an incredibly entertaining show and I can't believe no one is in no one in your town right now is making it. So during last week's ep- this this past this past episode, you know, and and I was really enjoying it and I was really enjoying the Connie Britton performance and all the infighting between the dream team and this the the great Rob Morrow cutaways I mean it's such a su- such a year for Morrow and we're only in February but then the, the, I'm feeling so northern exposed up in this piece you know <laughs> like, do, you, do you think there's a chance do you think there's a legitimate chance that for the next generation our kids generation the Jim Halpert stare will be replaced with the Barry Sheck eye open <laughs> Barry Sheck, man. That dude is not getting a lot of burn on the script pages, but Morrow's got a good agent or he's got a lot of charisma because they cut to him a lot. That's the same thing that happens in Billions is Morrow comes in and he's just like says, Chuck, I need to make this case go away. And then he walks away. You know, it's like it's like Rob Morrow is a is a major star in this town and in this business. (laughs) And you will respect his shine. It's not just that he's a major star. He's a very busy guy. He will come on set and demand that Axe Capital liquidate, and then he'll leave set because he has somewhere else to be. That is truly king status. You know what I mean? It's not where your parking place is on the lot. It's how quickly you can park and get out and still get your paycheck. Okay, so here's my here's my issue, though. Uh, as for as much as I'm enjoying it, and as for as, and as I still think it's excellently done, and honestly, I could just watch Courtney B. Vance for like seven hours. But that's my spinoff. This we'll week come back was to the that. first time where I felt like the show kind of was a little campy and exploitative and 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 had a, oh. some of the sort of worst tendencies of Ryan Murphy and I think it might mm-hmm. it might have been the music cues that sort of bothered me um this was the first uh, appearance we had of Fred Goldman who you know back when this trial was happening I felt like probably was the uh, object of a lot of ridicule because of you know showing emotion about his son being killed and uh, mm-hmm. He shows up in this episode where an actor playing him, obviously, and this is sort of the, the weird part about this show is that people are showing up and you're like, oh, yes, Fred Goldman is here. And it's like, well, it's it, this is a fictional version of this. This is a narrative version of this case. Um, and he you know, has this sort of incredibly emotional speech that he gives to Marsha Clark about, you know, I hope you never have to read an autopsy report of your own child and watching it. And then when they get into the beats of, like, Johnny Cochran's power move and walking in and having, like, West Coast rap playing as the reservoir dogs of the Dream Team walk mm-hmm. into a courtroom and to check the chess moves between Marsha Clark by having Darden. And it's, like, very traditional television show beats. I, I kind of felt a little gross. Well, it's an interesting point. I mean— Gross is definitely the word that I use most when I think about how Ryan Murphy shows make me feel. Right. So I don't think you're 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 out alone on that one. But for me, I, I think one of the reasons why it works is because I mean the word that people used a lot to describe the OJ trial was, was circus, right? It was just, sure. just everything happening 
at 100% volume all at once. And I feel like one of the reasons the show succeeds is because it is capturing that that spirit in the same way that the, the original case was about issues as searing and serious as race and as ludicrous as celebrity, so is this miniseries. And I think that you, you, you kind of can't make this show unless you give Fred Goldman's character the solo. You know, you kind of need that to ground a lot of the other excesses of the series. Um, in terms of how it was placed, the timing of it, you know, those are the kind of things that I feel like decisions are made in the moment in rooms, like which episode that's going to fall in, and then maybe they maybe they whiffed on that. Like maybe there is a more emotionally honest place to have slotted that scene in, but I still think it was important that it was there. I mean, this is the kind of things that are the slight differences and the, the little things that happen that are is the difference between like ryan murphy and david simon i mean david simon probably doesn't open an episode with the cnc music factory scene between card with kardashian and simpson in the club and he probably doesn't close with those guys walking in like you know with with the soundtrack (laughs) and it's and that's it's an it's a cool moment or it's like an interesting moment when you're watching it and then i just immediately felt like it was just very a very strange reaction, and I usually don't get particularly precious about this stuff, but I think it was something about the Fred Goldman scene that, that did it. I think that's a really interesting point, and it's also probably why you, me, and six other people watch Show Me a Hero, right. and this is a, you know, 10 million people are watching this. Very good point. It's really true, but, it, but it, 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 in and of itself, that would be an interesting conversation. Like, I don't know if I'm ready to do a serious, deep reading of, of um, Ryan Murphy's work, because, again, gross, but it would involve to compare reading it? and yeah. contrast... Yeah, but to compare and contrast him with David Simon and, like, just look at the material they choose. I mean, you know, Simon chose this incredibly naughty, relatively minor key story of the mayor of Yonkers to yeah. extrapolate a much larger um, much larger story uh, and, and thematic story out of it. You know, Murphy, Murphy goes – so basically, like, look, uh, David Simon goes to Yonkers, New York. Ryan Murphy goes to New York, New York in Las Vegas. Like those, the, those are the versions of big city stories that they want to tell. Right, and they're very different. Um, I just can I hit you with my my spinoffs? Sure. Like there is, n- I I cannot think of a single reason why Courtney B. Vance isn't in the FX offices on Pico right now, being like signing the contracts for the Johnny Cochran TV show. This is there is not going to be a performance this year that I like more than Courtney Vance as Johnny Cochran. It is incredible to watch him just dunk on everything, like all the other actors on history, on news footage. Like, I don't know if I could watch Johnny Cochran footage now and not think of how Courtney B. Vance is playing this guy, the complexity that he's having with it and the, that he's taking he's finding in it and the fun that he's having with it. Um, and then you think about Johnny Cochran's actual career where he where he defended so many interesting people and then at the same time you know he did these circus cases and then he also did serious work social justice work on the side and did serve as a mentor to people like um like uh uh dart chris darden in real life yeah so can you imagine even if you lightly fictionalized it if you take if you took johnny if you took courtney b vance and you took sterling brown who plays chris darden who has just been astonishing on the show too i think why, why does damages get five seasons, but this show doesn't? This show is so much more interesting to me, and it's not a story we've seen on TV. Follow-up show. I just think you have to have a show called The Juice is Loose, and you just put Schwimmer in the early 90s just partying, just trying his best. That hangdog face, all those tequila shots. It's basically that CNC Music Factory scene, but for an entire series. Because, look, 
we've talked about this before, and a lot of other people have talked about it too, but Friends is inexplicably popular, right? The whole generation of young people <laughs> yeah. are just binge-watching 200 episodes of Friends. They love Schwim. Yeah. They love Schwim. Juice! And you put him with that hangdog face and that weird kind of, it's not really, it's, it's somewhere, it's like, it's not punchable, it's not huggable, it's hug-punchable demeanor that he has. I would love to see him put into a much darker world. Like, like he should have been cast in the shield, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think we need to start, we need to get more creative about how we're, we're using Schwimmer in the future. Yeah. And I feel like we're ready for a Schwim renaissance. I would love to see, just final note, like, maybe Dave, David Schwimmer running uh, a, like, an orange grove. You know, like, just overseeing, like, the production. And just <laughs> so that he could keep saying, juice, juice. Uh, okay, Andy, let's keep it moving because we got to get rolling over to Sandpiper. <laughs> you are so fired up about this, man. Like, I didn't know that this that the elder care dragon rested within you. Yeah, let's talk about Better Call Saul and its naughty... relationship to, to, to senior issues. All it took was a naughty AMC drama series to really just, just start to tug on the thread. Of the of the wool scarf that Grand Grand had been knitting for you inside for all these years. So I obviously we're talking about Better Call Saul. We're talking about the the central uh, tension, dramatic tension of this show revolving around the Sandpiper retirement community and corruption therein. And uh, I, you know, I have to say that I was sort of mocking this last week or, or on Monday, and Alan Seppenwall actually rightly pointed out on Twitter that. Uh, retirement communities play a major role in the Breaking Bad verse. They do. I mean, you you I, you clearly forgot where my man Gus got got. You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, this this story of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul really is the story of managed care for our our most needy elderly citizens in the American Southwest. Yeah, all the meth stuff was a misdirect, like. You know, if you think about the story is really the arc of um, what was dude's life? Mark Margolis played him, you know, the ding ding. Oh, Salamanca. Tio. Tio Salamanca. Yeah. This is really his story. And we're just putting pieces of it together obliquely, like the world's longest game of Tetris, right? Yeah. We saw him as a young drug runner in Mexico, and then we saw him brought low, but then also brought cans of Ensure. So we saw like the circle (laughs) of life. And... I am sure, I'm convinced that the Sandpiper stuff will lead to that at some point. We haven't seen all the residents of Sandpiper. And no, I mean, that's Tio the thing there. is that you could get to the end of this season know. and you everybody's probably anticipating, like, when is, you know, when is Aaron Paul going to show up? Are we going to get a Cranston? Are we going to get a uh, Giancarlo Esposito cameo? And they could get to the end of this season and then Begley could go up to uh, Odenkirk and just be like, got another case for you, Saul. Or Jimmy, got another mm-hmm. case for you, Jimmy. Covered bridge retirement community. <laughs> And corruption therein. What, what if Ed Begley ended the season by going up to Odenkirk and said, got a case for you, Saul. And then Odenkirk <laughs> turned to the camera and winked and the credits rolled. That would just be like... So if, they just hit, yeah. if they just hit fast forward on everything. <laughs> Look, the, we're joking about it, and I think we should continue to joke about it. But God, the show is very dependable. It is very entertaining. It sure is, yeah. Um, um, I will say that there was a really great piece this week by Sean Collins and The Observer about the Mike problem on this show, which is that Mike is just really, really like an interesting character. And when he is on screen and when you're just like, you feel the gravity of the show sort of pulling towards him, people should check that piece out if they get a chance. And it's, it's just, um, 
it, 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 this has happened on other shows where certain supporting characters are so vibrant that they wind up demanding more screen time and demanding more more say in the, the overall narrative of the show. I think, obviously, we've talked before about um, Omar was only supposed to be like a minor, like I think only one episode or two or three episodes of The Wire and wound up being, obviously, probably one of the defining characters of the show. Well, you mentioned Aaron Paul. Jesse was supposed to die in the first season of yeah. Breaking Bad. Yeah, so I and, mean... And... There was a character, uh, a guest star named Bob Odenkirk showed up on Breaking Bad playing a minor supporting was character. Was he only supposed to be on for something. a couple of episodes? I don't think they put a cap on it. I think, you know, when you cast someone like that, the goal is always to see what is possible and how long they can be around. But, you know, they sort of let the market decide. Or in this case, they let the scripts and the performances decide. So it's not like they told him, you know, this is a three-episode turn. Don't don't buy any real estate here in the great American desert. But <laughs> they... They, they, but they also didn't see this. Why wouldn't of, you, though? I mean, it's just um, a smart investment move. It's it's beautiful. It's a great place to retire, provided you can take care of yourself. Yeah. If you if you need any assistance, you can't. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the show is it's so expertly made. And Breaking Bad was like this, too. It's so expertly told in terms of performance and production values and direction and writing that you almost don't mind the way you're being transported from... A to B to C in a way that isn't necessarily all that groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the stuff with the stuff with the pies and you know the way the two cases like synced up and then we learned lessons and it showed something about who Jimmy is now and then Jimmy revealed something to Kim about who he is now. All of that, you know, again the A to B to C story beats of that are pretty they're they're, they're arrow straight. Yeah, but and not particularly surprising, but it was really enjoyable and and you know. I, that's why I can, you know, I think the, the thing to say about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is very similar to the, 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 the stuff that we often said about Mad Men, which is the reason these shows are so good isn't because they're better than TV, but because they are such expert expressions of TV. Yeah. Andy, really quickly, I just want to take a break and tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors. I'm a little bit distracted right now because I'm getting kind of hungry. I'm thinking about dinner, and I'm thinking about how much better dinner would be if I had Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the ingredients you need plus instructions to cook restaurant-grade meals in under 30 minutes delivered straight to your door weekly. You get chef-designed restaurant-quality recipes, including rustic vegetarian tart with spinach, roasted red peppers, and goat cheese. Mm. Miso glazed salmon. I've been wanting to experiment with some different salmon recipes. That comes with Brussels sprouts and, and apple. And then you can also, if you just want to get into the regular old dinner, you get Parisian bistro steak with cream potatoes and green beans. That's dope. Recipes, cards, and step-by-step instructions make cooking accessible and help you learn new and fun techniques. Cook chef-driven, healthy, restaurant-grade dinners in a flash. It's nutrient-dense, perfectly portioned meals tailored to your unique dietary needs. Whether it's gluten-free, vegetarian, low-cal, low-carb, all those options are available. No more waiting in line at the grocery store. That sucks. Planning what to cook, which is also a drag. Or even resorting to takeout, which never tastes as good as you want it to. Each meal is under $10, more affordable than the grocery store. You just visit homeschef.com slash BSPN and use promo code BSPN at checkout for $20 off. That's homeschef.com slash BSPN, code BSPN. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. Um, we kind of, we, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago that there was a quote unquote, very special episode of mom. Right. And then this week, uh, I think somewhat interestingly, like linked to that was there was a very special episode of blackish. Right. Um, I didn't get a chance to see that episode of blackish. I did weirdly get a chance to see that episode of mom, but, um, you hit me up this morning about this. Tell me a little bit about this episode. I was really blown away by this. this. The episode of Blackish that was on this week was called Hope, 
and it was written by the series creator Kenya Barris, and it's basically uh, the show's take on not just the Black Lives Matter movement, but you know, a conversation that is a very real thing for many African American families in this country, which is what is fairness in this country? What to expect from the justice system? What to think about the police and what to think about this run of just truly appalling video footage and news and um, legal decisions that have been plaguing this country. I mean, obviously these things are not new and this is mentioned in the episode, but the video of them is new and it does seem like an epidemic at the moment because people are, can see these things now and are paying more attention to it. And the episode is just phenomenal. And it's phenomenal not because of the subject matter that it deals with, although kudos for tackling something so difficult in the first place. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal piece of uh, inclusive and responsive writing. The episode is basically a bottle episode. The entire family is gathered around the TV um, waiting for the news on um, an invented case involving police overreach, let's call it. And they're also there because they're trying to decide what to order for dinner from the various takeout menus. And there's a, there's a, a good running joke about just, just somebody bury the P.F. Chang's menu in respect to that. Um, but the show is so clever and nuanced and delicate in the way it does all this. And it feels completely true to every character and number of points of view. But it never loses sight of what the show itself wants to say. Sure. It is not just like, to, to use a, a line from the debate last night, it is not just a fruit salad of, of POVs. <laughs> It is very focused right. in a way that I found really, really impressive. And, you know, I haven't seen the episode of Mom, although I like that show a lot. Do you? It was a really – the thing about the black – yeah, I, I like it. I think it's good. I mean, oh. I, I never watch it. But when I watch it, I'm like, oh, it's pretty good. Um, the thing about this episode of Blackish, and it's worth noting with the Carmichael show returning in a couple weeks to NBC, mm-hmm. and that's Gerard Carmichael's multicam show. It's, you know, intent, intentionally, almost defiantly, a throwback to Norman Lear sitcoms, basically, where a bunch of opinionated family members sit around in essentially a stage play and talk about stuff. And one of the things that, that Gerard does on that show is they hold the writing as late as possible so they can be responsive. And that, coupled with this episode of Blackish, really were a remarkable argument for what the sitcom can do. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, um, Horace and Pete is like that too, right? Yeah, I mean, the th- one of the things that, that people... Well, I, I'll make two points about it. One is the production... The, 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 the realities of TV production are insane, and it drives people crazy. They have to do so much work. You have to do it so fast. But there are advantages in that, right? You can be more nimble. You can be more responsive to the news. You, you know, they could have written and filmed this episode six weeks ago, maybe. Um, you know, in the case of Horace and Pete, they're probably filming today's episode last week or last night. Um, there's, a, there's a real potential to engage with the present in a way that is not possible in movies. Um, and similarly, watching this episode of Blackish, I was like, we sit around heaping praise on a show, I'll mention it again, a show like Mad Men, for really delving into the emotional and political realities of, of who we were as people 50 years ago. And, you know, finding insight in who we are now through that mirror, through that lens. But it's like, there's a lot of stuff happening right now. And it is wonderful to go on these, you know, these artsy um, peregrinations through various time periods and put all these different filters and artistic ideas over it. But there's a lot of stuff happening in the world. And you're just leaving that on the table. And w- it's kind of refreshing. The sitcom takes on the mantle of uh of dealing with it now not every episode should be like ripped from the headlines like law and order but some could be i think that you know we often we we usually don't talk about sitcoms and it's not because we don't like them or it's not because we don't like watching comedies it's because not enough happens in them for us to sort of get a foothold 
in a conversation about it, right? And this is sort of something that's plagued these these shows for a while. When you think back to um, Parks and Rec or The Office, a lot of the things that people would talk about, aside from you know maybe the general worldview of the show, were the romance plot lines. So will they or won't they plot lines? And that's generally most sitcoms jump immediately into a will they or won't they plot line because it's what they think keeps people coming back. And I wonder whether mm-hmm. or not with this episode of Blackish, with this episode of Mom, with Horace and Pete, I wonder if to get back into the conversation, sitcoms will start doing more things like this. Now, I'm not advocating for them to you know, do something drastic on Modern Family. Like, but Modern Family was, for instance, a show that started with like a very kind of progressive, not politically charged, but socially aware um, setup. You know, it was this idea that the new family in America could take all these different shapes and colors and sexual orientations and it still be a family, um, which for, a, I think, a Wednesday night sitcom was was somewhat somewhat brave to do you know but they kind of never I, I i don't feel like they've really like engaged politically since then i think there was that whole like thing about like art was there going to be a kiss or not but it would be interesting to see if like a couple of shows tried doing stuff like this whether it's i mean i don't really advocate for like characters dying on sitcoms because it's just sort of how do you recover from that but i i would be curious to see them sort of get a little bit more inventive with the with the with the dramatic arcs yeah, and I think, um, you know, the best comedy comes from specificity. And so rooting the characters in a time and a place and a point of view can only help the comedy, I think, in yeah. addition to, you know, maybe helping it gain traction in the larger conversation. It was interesting. When I talked to, I talked to Abby and Alana from Broad City for my pod last week, and one of the things we talked about was how, you know, the, the season premiere of, of Broad City, the third season, which I thought was just great, a lot of it had to do with... Um, well, like a lot of the episodes have to do with them trying to afford stuff or get into stuff. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, it is so funny how far we've gotten away from any television characters ever worrying about money. Like, that's just not something they do, you know. And it, maybe you, you trace that back to Friends, because prior to that, the model for sitcoms was, you know, a family show like The Cosby Show, or there was Roseanne was the more working-class family show. But then on Friends, they just lived in palatial lofts in the West Village and laughed about stuff. Right. And that mirrored you know that was aspirational and the advertisers like that and also it probably mirrored the experience of the people writing the show a little bit more but if you start your conversation or your or your or if you focus your your joke camera you know only at the top percentage of income look at all the material and people and experience and potentially jokes that you're just ignoring you're just leaving that stuff on the table yeah i think so that there's I, I, you know i think that the the way that they handle it typically is usually like whether it's don draper or bobby axelrod or or Richie Finestra or whatever. It's someone with a lot of money with money problems. So it's not really money problems. It's not like you're going to be homeless money problems, but it's it's an issue where you're like, I might lose some of my money. And I think that that is right. typically what happens in sitcoms is it's like there's like a firm upper middle class grounding with like sometimes it's like, we can't afford this second car, you know? Right. It's like they're not wrong with the, the ratcheting up TV creators are not wrong to to go along with this ratcheting up of stakes, particularly in a highly competitive marketplace, right? And so the idea that the problems that a billionaire has are a billion times more stressful than the problems that a hundredaire has. Sure. But, you know, when Bro- when Abby and Alana in Broad City, like, buy a dress at a sample sale and they didn't take off the little security tag and then they have to deal with that, 
that can be just as rich subject matter as buying the third yacht. Yeah, right. And maybe a little bit more. Will Axe get on um, the yacht? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I or, or, or will Axe get Metallica on the yacht before <laughs> Rob Morrow has to go? Yeah, because he has a lunch across town. Uh, it's interesting, and, it, and, it, and it, it definitely bears watching. And I, I recommend people check out this episode of Blackish, but also um, Carmichael Show when it comes back in a few weeks to NBC. Okay, Andy, the fourth thing we wanted to talk about today was this band, the 1975. And I really wanted to talk about it for one specific reason, because over okay. the last couple of days, I feel like they have been, it's been inescapable that this record is coming out. Can you tell me what the, what the name of this thing is? Because it's very funny. It is so funny. I'm going to have to look it up, so you keep talking about it, and I will deliver a dramatic reading of what it's called. Well, I have a, I have a, I have a sort of favorite Andy uh, anecdote from, from our music criticism days, and that has to do with when I'm you excited. were writing about... Um, so what's the name of the album? Are you ready? Yeah. Are you, are you, are you sitting down? I think so. <clears throat> I like it when you sleep, for you are so beautiful, yet so unaware of it. That was the creepiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Don't ever talk like Yo, that. Yo, that's again. a record title in 2016. <laughs> that is the name of these dudes' album. They didn't just think of it; they had to write it down and give it to their lawyers and be like, "No, we're serious about this." Well, anyway, so continue. These guys have these guys have been in my face all week on online, and I've noticed just an, an incredible amount of like PR and 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 marketing force behind them and one of my favorite stories that you used to tell was when you were working on i think a, either a feature or maybe it was part of your book when you were talking to dashboard confessional a lot and mm -hmm. i think remind me of this is was i don't know if jimmy iovine iovine told you this or whether you had just heard it secondhand but it was basically this concept of pushing the button on a band yeah yeah so tell right it was the idea so 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 basically dashboard was on the on the brink of what a lot of people assume would be major stardom and uh, Vagrant was about to enter into a deal with that was the indie label the dashboard was on with Interscope Records, which at the time was the biggest of the big labels. Yeah, it was like fifty cents was, was on Interscope a, aftermath. Yeah, and taking a share of Vagrant basically so that they could share in the profits of Dashboard and also be responsible for the push. And yeah, that was the idea. Like I, I mean, I went to see Dashboard playing shows with I think Weezer, and I, this, I wrote all about this in my in, in the book I wrote, but. Um, I mean, like, took a helicopter from L.A. to Phoenix to see the show, came backstage to Glad Hand, shook my hand and said, congratulations, great show. <laughs> and uh, Great show, Andy. And then, and then talked to Chris Caraba for a while. And afterwards, I talked to Chris, and he was just, like, very nonplussed. He was just like, that's, I'm, I'm his golden guy right now. Like, right. he is now, like, they, everything is lined up, and he will push the promotional button, and the entire machinery will turn and push me. And then if I, you know, until I fall off the ledge, basically, and I start pushing someone else. Yeah, and the, I've, I've noticed that the main promotional arm behind this 1975 record, which is, you know, I we can talk about the music in a second. It has been, really been Apple Music, and it's the first, I think the other major artist that they, not major artist, but the other artist that they really tried to break was Halsey, and they had varying results with that. I don't really know what, what she wound up selling. I, I feel like the... I mostly heard about Halsey on Apple Music, so it's hard to say. Do you know what you could do? Here's, you know what you could do with what Halsey sold? You could stack them up and make a delicious pizza oven because you put the wood around the bricks that she dropped. 
and you could get a delicious char deep dish um you know you could really because it has to be hot you know to get the to get the, the cheese melted and get that nice chew on the bottom part of the pizza that's what you want yeah you can't be you have to be at least like six seven hundred maybe even nine hundred degrees in there so brick really conducts heat well is what i'm saying well Especially i don't have a, a lot, lot of bricks. ventilation in my apartment so i can't really have that halsey record around but <laughs> uh I, you know, they, the 1975 played like a concert sort of in among the L.A. skyline, like on top of a building in Los Angeles. And then like you could see the downtown Los Angeles skyline from it. And I think they've been on the Zane Lowe show a couple of times, you know, and they just were really pushing this record really hard. Uh, The funny thing about this band is that it's definitely the kind of band you and I would have been like super into in 1996, like a band that was experimenting with lush lush pop sounds while also being like neurotic and hyper literate in their lyrics uh it's not exactly connecting and with me and, and also singing and about being drugs english. and being english and singing about drugs and being english <laughs> yeah. yeah um to me this the record's not really connecting with me but i am interested in how they're being sold on two tracks right now so like there's one that's like this uh-huh. is just the pure pop version and this guy never wears a shirt and he's really adorable and you should just be into them as a pop band and then on the side or like on another track it's like this is you know we're trying to like get that morrissey burn off of this guy where it's like he is a doomed poet for his generation uh i don't know if either of those paths are going to work but it is interesting to watch it happen it's like british scientists locked them away 15 for 15 years being like the Verve should have worked, but they didn't. Right. Why is that? And right. then they came out of the lab and they were with these guys. Now, I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to, to bag on them too much. Like the first record a couple years ago had a song called Chocolate that I think was pretty good. Um, but I think it is almost impossible to listen to this music or, you know, stand in the middle of this PR deluge and just not be overwhelmed by the thirst by the record company Thirst. Like this is the thirstiest I've seen a major label be in a really, really long time that you know, we don't have any major rock bands. We absolutely, desperately, desperately uh, need to create one here. And I, you know, I, I, I'm reading the press stuff about this record, reading reviews of it, and all of them talk about how the first 1975 album went platinum. And to that, I'd like to say, yeah, fucking right. <laughs> now, I don't know your sound scan figures. You know, I don't know where your diamonds on the wall come from, but. I kind of want to, it makes me think about, there's a comedian named Joe Mandy who used to write on Parks and Rec, and he's a very funny guy. And this dude has one million Twitter followers, okay? And he is very upfront about the fact that he spent like 200 bucks and bought 700,000 of them. And that's what he did, and now he has a million Twitter followers. Even so, even though I know he did that, every time I see a tweet from him in my feed, I'm like, oh, I should pay attention to that, because he has a million followers, even if... Nearly all of them are sex bots. So I, I just I just don't I just don't buy this. Okay. You know what I mean? Like especially because and again, none of that matters because PR blasts are PR blasts. When someone pushes the button, good for them. Like I would like the record industry to succeed. And we're having this conversation a week or so after we went off about how we wish rock music or whatever passes for rock music was relevant in twenty sixteen. But I listened to this record, my man. I listened to this record, and I was like, "Are you serious?" Maybe like, we just weren't for real. made for these times, man. Maybe we're too old. But I, I like—I I don't understand. Like, I—I I, I talk about what I want, and then I hear it, and I'm horrified because 
I think I've said to you into the same microphone many times how I would like a rock band to engage with pop music, to pay attention to what's on the radio, to try and do something from their point of view that is, you know, that is part of that same conversation. Right. To engage with black music or R&B music or dance music or, you know, the 80s. And then you hear some of their songs and it's just like, oh, they listened to Bowie's Let's Dance and started giggling. Like, this song, what's the song that people like? The sound? Yeah. That's their that's their jam. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. But that song is so sexless it makes Bell and Sebastian sound like Al Green. <laughs> it's just I can't believe this is what we're doing right now. And call me call me when this record goes gold. That's a that's a strong verdict. Andy, let's wrap up by quickly talking about the Oscars. They're coming this Sunday night. And uh we haven't really talked about it much. Um I wasn't really sure where your head was at with it. I want to say let's say what is one thing you hope to see on Sunday night? Uh, I hope to see Sylvester Stallone uh, thank Ryan Coogler <laughs> yeah. and Aaron Covington yeah. and Michael Jordan just for allowing him to be the avatar of their enormous success. And, you know, I know it wasn't he he did thank them at the Globes, but it was just like the camera had gotten cut off by the time he thanked them. Just start saying their names when you get your name called like just start saying ryan coogler michael b jordan at your seat and say keep saying it as you walk up to the stage and as you walk to the microphone just be saying ryan coogler ryan coogler yeah. michael b jordan michael b jordan and then be like great yeah. now you can thank everybody fact, else everyone should say that the closer we get to the oscars the more it actually does boggle my mind that that movie wasn't nominated for anything else considering just how successful it was at on its own terms and it being exactly the movie that the academy loves to celebrate i, I mean i'm curious your answer to this i find this I think it's just it's a strange, sour vibe around these Oscars. And it's not just because of the fact that people have been, I think, in a large part, correctly paying attention to the enormous racial disparity of the nominees. These movies, they're B minuses. They're fine. Like, I think Spotlight is the best movie nominated for Best Picture. But it's hard to get your dander up about it because it is a intentionally subtle, small, pointed movie. You know, we're... Beyond that, it's a coronation. Like, I, I'm ready to see the Queen Alicia Vikander win. I hope that happens. But it's not because I saw her in The Danish Girl, because I have no interest in seeing that movie. I just like her in Ex Machina. You, you know? saw her, and I just think you liked her in like Burnt, cool too, right? We, by the way, we have not talked about... I watched that movie on a plane for you, my man. And we we'll we'll save that for it. a special um, episode. Would, um, I think well, that... I, I'm happy to see Brie Larson win, too, because I think my, she's amazing, My dream but, is that... Uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to win his Oscar on Sunday. This is part of the problem is that it's kind of foregone conclusions. Revenant's going to win everything. Leonardo's going to win. Yeah. Brie Larson's going to win. Alicia Vikander's going to win. Like these, all these things are kind Stallone. of locked. And this is the problem that Oscars has is that by the time they actually get around to having them, people have sort of figured out what's going to happen beforehand. So you're really just watching a four-hour pageant. I would love to see real leo show up on the stage we're gonna get a guy who goes up and is just like thanks to martin scorsese thanks to alejandro for giving me this opportunity my mother all the people blah 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 and then he's gonna try and save walton pond but i would love to see yacht leo show up (laughs) vape god standing on stage the patron saint of israeli models and just be like i finally won bitches and just like like accidentally like just basically go up in a puff of vape of e-cigarette smoke no, do you know how he disappears? David fucking Blaine shows up and drops a smoke bomb and goes, magic. That's right. I and can't think of a better way. We'll probably talk more about how we'd fix the Oscars on Monday when we come back for the regular watch episode. Andy, 
As always, thank you so much. It's been a blast talking to you. I'm going to go turn on this 1975 record and think about mortality uh, and join a retirement community, maybe Sandpiper, somewhere nice in the Southwest. Great job, Varansky. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We just want to thank our sponsors, Home Chef, again. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus chef-designed recipes to cook restaurant-grade meals in under 30 minutes. It's nutrient-dense, perfectly portioned meals tailored to your unique dietary needs, whether that's gluten-free, vegetarian, low-cal, low-carb. All those options are available. Meal kits are delivered straight to your door weekly for under $10 per meal. Visit homechef.com slash BSPN and use promo code BSPN at checkout for $20 off. That's homechef.com slash BSPN. Promo code BSPN. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef.